This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, January 6th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, shifting from COVID zero tolerance to mitigation, teaching government in 2022, county updates building codes, and a mountain weather forecast. It's time for a mindset shift when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. That's according to San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin. We have to learn to live with this virus, and there is a really fine balance between um, zero tolerance and risk mitigation. Franklin spoke on KOTO on Thursday. Zero tolerance means the attempt for zero cases of COVID and no spread. Zero deaths, zero hospitalizations. There are a few countries that are still trying for this, and it's um, it's a really intense, it kind of goes back to the 2020 lockdown mentality of we will do whatever it takes to stop this one specific thing from spreading. Franklin says risk mitigation is weighing the problems that come from getting COVID against the problems that come from trying to avoid it. How do we adapt from this emergency response, which it still is an emergency, but it's this like slow burning emergency, right? So it's really hard for us to wrap our brains around this. Um, but yeah, how do we how do we start to assess our individual risk as well as uphold a level of that societal responsibility to do as least amount of harm as possible, but not um, not lock ourselves in our rooms for the next five years. She says there are three main aspects that allow that shift to happen. First, vaccines and boosters. First and foremost, um, to get a vaccine or a booster if um, you're eligible, if it's safe to do so, um, and be open to the fact that the science is continuing to evolve, and as we get more data, we're likely going to need more boosters and changing the definition of what fully vaccinated is. This week, the Food and Drug Administration recommended expanding booster eligibility to those 12 and older. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention still needs to approve the recommendation. Next in the shift are treatments. The FDA recently approved oral treatments for COVID. Franklin says once those are widely available, they will be a game changer for those who are unable to be vaccinated or get severe illness. Finally, the mental shift. Taking individual responsibility for your comfort level. Going out to a bar or to a restaurant, are you as an individual comfortable um, being in a crowded bar or is do you feel more comfortable if it's um, sparsely populated, right? And really just thinking about what are your individual um, needs as well as um, how would it impact you if you did get sick? Franklin says it all comes down to communication and respecting needs and values. It's having those conversations, right, of saying, oh, hey, you know, my friend just told me that they tested positive. This is kind of my situation in relation to that. Do you want to hang out or no? And then respect the answer. Or um, if you are hanging out with um, your grandparents or a coworker um, that is more vulnerable, really just having these really um, seemingly difficult conversations that really are just a way to open up and take care of one another um, in a more inclusive way. From a public health perspective, Franklin says they're finding the balance between mandates and regulations and providing the tools so individuals can make the best decisions for themselves. Public health is so much more than just one virus. It really is the health of the community, all these different aspects about where we live, work, and play to make sure that we're all being taken care of, supporting each other, and feeling connected. 
San Miguel County has testing opportunities available across the region Monday through Friday. COVID vaccine clinics are available once a week in Telluride and at the Uncompahgre Medical Center in Norwood. With the new Omicron variant, public health recommends wearing KN95 masks. Surgical masks are okay, but cloth masks are not ideal given the transmissibility of the variant. Samantha Jacobs has a standing policy in her classroom. We don't discuss politics. Jacobs is a social studies teacher in Norwood. This year, one of her classes is eighth grade civics. I just keep the political part out of the classroom because it's just too volatile for them to handle. But over the last few years, she says, that's gotten harder. It's just really challenging because when the government's polarized, it makes the students polarized. As the first anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol comes and goes, KOTO checked in with local government teachers about what it's been like teaching about our country in increasingly divided times. Kelly Boykin teaches government at Telluride High School. She agrees teaching government has changed over the last few years because society has changed and become more polarized. There's more areas for that dialogue. There's more areas where people are not necessarily going to see things in the same way. So that that, that has made it perhaps more challenging because you just have to kind of navigate that. Jacobs recalls when she started teaching over two decades ago, things were different. Political parties were very similar. Like there was almost no difference between a moderate liberal, liberal and a moderate conservative person. They literally had the same things that they wanted. Still, Boykin says when she does surveys with students for them to see where they fall on the political spectrum, they can be surprised. There's some kids that will think that they're very conservative and they'll take one of these surveys and they actually end up more in the middle or even more, the, you know, what would be classified on the Democrat side. So shocked and just that they kind of have a preconceived idea of where they think they might be. Um, and then they really look at start looking at some of these issues and they don't always fall exactly what they thought they were. And Boykin adds, there are some positive changes. Students, she says, are more interested in civics. The kids want to know the foundations of government. They want to know what's in the Constitution. There's a real interest there. So it's a real learning opportunity. For her part, Jacobs is pessimistic polarization will decrease. She thinks it will only get worse. Students, I don't know if they're willing or able to learn how to learn their own voice. They're hearing so much of that rhetoric at home, but then they believe that that's the only way, and they're not willing to explore other options. Boykin feels differently. The kids, she says, make her hopeful. Because they they are passionate, and they are curious, and, and um, they are thoughtful, and I'm ready for them to get out there and, and start uh, figuring some of this stuff out. Because I think they're going to do a much better job than the the current generation and previous generations, in all honesty. Time will tell how both of those predictions play out. But one thing is certain. Over the next few years, those students will grow up, start to vote, and play their parts in carrying the torch of American democracy forward wherever it's headed. Earlier this week, the San Miguel County Board of Commissioners approved new building codes. The update process started last spring and has been a long time coming. The county last updated its codes about a decade ago. Continuing to more consistently address our and update our building code will 
allow the buildings in our community to more closely align with our county vision of benefiting the, the environment, our local resources, and protecting those. That's county building official Matt Gonzalez addressing the BOCC at their meeting this week. One of the major changes Gonzalez highlights is around fire mitigation and specifically decks. It seems that appendages to buildings and eaves and projections seem to be a large spreader of wildfire as it pertains to homes. So we're taking provisions to, to protect some decks with things like uh, metal flashing over the deck joist, non-combustible or ignition resistant decking with gaps, you know, so that embers can't settle um, in between smolder. There are also requirements for, at minimum, Class B roofs for all roofs. Which alludes to resistance in a wildfire. So if something lands on a Class B roof, it'll sit and burn and not spread and not burn through and um, not allow the roof to shed off and, and spread the fire. Energy efficiency, Gonzalez notes, is another big piece of the code updates, including the tightness of buildings. You know, we have a maximum of three uh, air changes per hour, and that refers to how you seal your home by code, not letting the conditioned air and the energy that we use to condition our inside of our buildings escape. With that also comes required mechanical ventilation. You know, if you have a super tight house, you need to bring in good, clean air at, a, at a, an appropriate rate. There are also more stringent energy requirements, Gonzalez explains, for larger homes. The commissioners unanimously adopted the new codes. Moving forward, Gonzalez adds, the resolution can be a living document. We can always revisit this resolution and amend it and include any programs or you know any requirements that we think we need to so that we can continue to um, use building code to meet our county goals of you know resource conservation and, and human and, and environmental health. Beyond those amendments, Gonzalez doesn't think it will be another decade before San Miguel County again updates its building codes. He says he hopes to get on to a six-year update cycle. 2021 was a mixed bag for overnight visitors in Telluride. That's according to recently released data from the Telluride Tourism Board, aggregating information from regional hotels and property management companies. TTB notes the data accounts for about 70% of professional lodging providers. Occupancy was down. It was about 44% in 2021, compared to roughly 49% in 2019. But those visitors who came stayed longer, 4.1 nights in 2021, compared to 3.5 in 2019. Looking ahead, the TTB data shows roughly upward trends, with occupancy rates for February 2022 higher than last year and close to those seen two years ago, and those for March about one-third higher than those seen over the last two years. The Sheridan Arts Foundation has announced several upcoming events that will take the stage at the Sheridan Opera House this month. The Little Smokies, described as bluegrass with hints of rock, will play Saturday, January 15th at 9 p.m. On Tuesday, January 18th, Dirt Wire, described as a blend of ethnomusicology and the psychedelic trance-state gut-bucket delta blues, will play at 8 p.m. Electronic music is up next with Late Night Radio with Motif on Friday, January 21st at 9 p.m. And closing out the month, a movie, Warren Miller's Winter Starts Now. Originally scheduled for last month, the ski film screening was postponed due to the pandemic, but will now take place Thursday, January 27th 
at 5.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. Proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours is required for all events at the Sheridan Opera House. Don Corum is officially running for Congress. The moderate Republican from Montrose is about to begin his final year as a state senator at the state capitol. On Monday, he filed his paperwork to challenge incumbent Lauren Boebert in the June Republican primary to represent the 3rd Congressional District in Washington. The Montrose Press reports Corum called the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election with an insurrection on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol one year ago, quote, embarrassing. The 2022 primary election will take place on Tuesday, June 28th. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Gavin Dahl from KVNF spoke to Will Tour, executive director of the Colorado Energy Office. Previously, he served on Colorado's Air Quality Control Commission, worked at the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, was a Boulder County Commissioner, mayor of Boulder, and worked at the University of Colorado Environmental Center. He has a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Chicago. The interview covers the state's greenhouse gas pollution reduction efforts, growing demand for electric vehicles, and rural EV charging infrastructure. In late December, a team of state agencies released a report on Colorado's greenhouse gas pollution reduction efforts. Governor Polis says we're on track to achieve 100% renewable energy by 2040. Now, there's way more going on statewide than we can cover today. Can you talk specifically about the role the Energy Office plays in this? Yeah, so the Energy Office has really helped to both convene sort of all of the relevant state agencies to develop our strategic roadmap to achieve our climate targets, and then has been very engaged specifically on the electricity side. So working with electric utilities and the Public Utilities Commission to essentially advance retiring coal generation around the state and replacing it with wind and solar. And we're now on this sort of amazing track where by the end of the 2020s, every utility in the state will have achieved more than 80% reduction in their uh, greenhouse gas pollution. In fact, you know, for many utilities, we may be closer to a 90% reduction by the end of the decade. The other area where the Energy Office has been really very engaged is on transportation electrification and supporting adoption of electric cars, trucks, and buses, and then on the building side and really supporting energy efficiency and the move towards the use of high-efficiency electric heat pumps instead of propane or gas to heat homes and heat the water in homes. I took a look at your EVs in Colorado dashboard. That's at energyoffice.colorado.gov. How is EV adoption going in Colorado? You know, the last year has been really remarkable because we have just seen sort of a skyrocketing rate of EV adoption. You know, if you were to look back two years ago, about two and a half percent of new vehicle sales were electric vehicles. As of the last couple of months, what we've seen is 10 to 11 percent of sales are electric vehicles, and it's been going up every month. And, you know, I think that among other things, reflects the fact that we're starting to see a wider variety of vehicles available. And, you know, as we start to see things like the Ford F-150, you know, the Ford Lightning hit the market, I think we're just going to see skyrocketing sales in Colorado. In fact, just yesterday, Ford announced that there's so much uh, demand that they're doubling the capacity at their factory and are going to go from building 80,000 to 150,000 of them next year. 
Wow. Well, it seems like we're faced with kind of a haves versus have-nots problem, and not just for vehicles, but also even just for the charging stations. And this kind of gets into the realm of environmental justice. A friend of mine was driving from Arizona back to Colorado recently and realized she couldn't find a charging station for her electric vehicle on the reservation lands in the Four Corners. How do we make progress on this? Yeah, it's a super important issue. I think we really need to make sure that as we move to a clean energy future and an electric vehicle future, that it's a future for everyone and we're not leaving communities or parts of the state behind. One of the things that I think is really going to help in Colorado is that last year the, the legislature approved new funding sources for electric vehicle charging and for EV fleet adoption that have specific focus on equity in EV adoption. So over the next decade, the state's going to have about three quarters of a billion dollars to invest in supporting transportation electrification. We have a mandate from that legislation to make sure that we were thinking about equity, that we're developing programs specifically to support adoption in low and moderate income communities, and that we're building out charging infrastructure statewide. So it can't be just in a metro area it's got to address the needs of rural Colorado. I'm pretty excited about one program that's already moving forward, which is the EV Corridors Program, where we are uh, building fast charging every 50 miles along major highway corridors in the state, including 70, 76, 25, 50, 550, and Highway 40. That's going to be a significant step towards giving access in a lot of the state. But the infrastructure bill that just passed at the federal level is also going to bring $57 million to invest in corridor charging over the next few years. That's going to allow us to build out charging in many additional corridors. So I think there's a real opportunity to make sure that we've got the charging that people need across essentially the entire state over the next few years. Quickly, before we go, the governor's proposed budget includes funding for electric school buses and electric bikes. What does that look like? Yeah, I think this is really exciting. The governor has proposed a $150 million investment in electric school buses that would essentially allow us to work with school districts across the state over the next six years, just as they replace uh, diesel buses, which they do every year as the buses get old. There would be funding available to allow any district that's interested to replace with a clean electric school bus instead of a diesel bus. For a lot of kids, The highest levels of pollution that they are ever exposed to are while sitting on the bus or, you know, standing next to the bus. So in addition to the broad climate benefits, there's just sort of huge public health benefits to moving away from diesel buses to electric school buses. And the reports we get from drivers is that they love them. They're quiet. They're easy to drive. So very excited about that one. And then there's also in the budget $12 million for rebates for electric bicycles. What we've seen is that e-bikes are a great way for people to be able to commute and do errands. And that when you go to an e-bike, people are far more likely to use that for everyday commuting purposes than they are conventional bicycles. So there's a real opportunity there, I think, to both help people get, get some exercise get traffic off the road, and reduce emissions. That was KVNF's Gavin Dahl speaking with Will Tour, executive director of the Colorado Energy Office. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-20s. 
Friday, expect sunny skies with a high in the mid-40s. Friday night should be cloudy with a low in the mid-20s. Saturday, calls for snow showers in the afternoon with a high in the mid-30s and wind gusts as high as 25 miles per hour. Saturday night should be partly cloudy with a low in the mid-teens. This has been the news for Thursday, January 6th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hi, this is Kathy from Strong Start, here to tell you about our upcoming early childhood recruitment event. In 2017, San Miguel County passed the Early Childhood Mill Levy, sending a clear message that our community prioritizes our child care system. Come learn about all the benefits Strong Start has implemented and all the reasons why you should join the field of early childhood education. Get your early childhood coursework paid for. Increase your salary with biannual grants for teachers and work within our supportive early childhood cohort while making a positive impact on the children in our community. Whether you are a current high school student curious about becoming a preschool teacher, or a parent interested in child development, or maybe you're searching for a fulfilling and life-changing career, this event is for you. So join us virtually on Wednesday, January 12th from 6 to 7 p.m. to discuss which early childhood pathway is right for you. For more information and to register for the events, please visit our website, strongstartstrongcommunity.org. Once you register, you'll receive a link to this event. Again, visit strongstartstrongcommunity.org. We're looking forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Kodo. Hey, Kodo listeners. The open enrollment period for health insurance is almost over, so it's your last chance to save on health insurance for 2022. The deadline is January 15th, so you have to act fast to get coverage for yourself and your family. Lots of great deals and discounts are only offered during open enrollment, so don't miss out. Insurance can be confusing, but Tri-County Health Network can help. Our health coverage guides can meet with you one-on-one to find the plan that's right for you and help you enroll. Just go to tchnetwork.org or email enrollment at tchnetwork.org to set up an appointment. Don't wait. Be ready for 2022 and enroll in health insurance today. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.